Great. So welcome everybody back to Establish. Tonight is um, lesson nine of Covenant. Um, we will dive into a review, um, and I haven't I haven't pre-assigned any of this, but uh, where were we at last week? We covered. Who can remember? The tabernacle is, uh, I believe, what you you uh, kind of focused on last last week. Very good. That bought you the next slide. <laughs> the word tabernacle. That's right. What were some of the big the big truths that we took forward from the tabernacle? God, um, you know, gave him or made it possible that like his presence was with the Israelites, but it was on his terms. It was all his way. Yeah, he outlined how the tabernacle was to be built and, and the, the Holy of Holies place and who exactly, all the details, which people, which person, um, Aaron and his, his uh, sons. And, and we learned really quickly what happened if, if um, that wasn't listened to. Aaron's sons, the first two that came forward with unholy fire, um, were struck down right there. And were carried out because they tried to come in with, I think it said, unholy fire. Um, yeah, really good, Brett. What about uh, what about the sacrificial system? What was kind of a, a key term there coming forward? The the concept of uh, atonement, um, which. Kind of using a point on that word uh, at one moment with God, where we uh, can be reconciled to God uh, um, in our sinful state through the sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. That's right. Yeah, and that blood sacrifice was a as a substitute. So it's the same thing um, as we were studying the lesson on Abraham and Isaac, and. Uh, God provided a substitute ram for Isaac. And so we see that now reoccurring here. Um, I don't know if you can see. I'm going to try this here. Um, we have here the man with his hand on the, on the ram or on the, on the animal. Um, it's not working for me. But anyways, he's, he's laying his hand on the ram or on the, on the sheep. And uh, it's acting as his substitute. And that would be sacrificed. Exactly. So we have the Day of Atonement. Uh, when the people were made at one with God, that was a foreshadowing uh, of the Deliverer to come. We have this, this substitute um, animal dying in the place of, of a person or people. And um, tied in with that uh, was this idea of a, of a scapegoat. Um, probably where you get the term today, you know, are you my scapegoat <laughs> kind of a thing? Or don't make me be your scapegoat on this. It's your problem, not mine. But uh, here we have um, a scapegoat where the sins were put upon and the animal was sent out. Um, so we, and then, yeah, so Brett touched on God's presence with the people, even though um, they weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. God's presence came down with them in a special way. We had the Day of Atonement. We had the sacrifice, the substitute. 
Uh, what else? Um, what was one other big one? Or maybe uh, two, two other big ones yet. Who are the people that uh, could go in to the Holy of Holies or, or uh, deal with the sacrifices? The Holy of Holies was just the high priest. The high priest, yeah. Yeah, on the Day of Atonement. So we had the high priest, and then as well, I guess one step down from that, we had we had the 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 priesthood, right? Like the Levitical priests. And so what was their role in, in, in their job? What was their job description? <laughs> Were they just a, a, a figurehead or did they have a role to play? Are you thinking the word mediator? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because that was their job, right? They were the go-between, the mediators um, from the people, the Israelites, uh, and God. Again, that's another another important term that we will carry forward. Cool, guys. So in today's lesson, I uh, hope you guys have your spiritual seatbelts buckled up. Um, we're going to actually speed through about 100 years of Israel's history. Um, from about numbers to Samuel plus a little more, give or take. <laughs> so this lesson begins with Israel at Mount Sinai, um, where we last left off, and then it sees them through into the promised land. And then what we're going to um, look at is these cycles of rebellion, um, God's judgment, punishment, um, and then their repentance. And then finishing, uh, the lesson will finish when Israel sets up their first human kings. Um, so the hook for tonight is God is faithful to his promise and his people, even when they are rebellious. And there is a whole lot bundled up in that hook, um, which we'll, we'll hopefully unpack at least some of it in this lesson. And we can talk about more of it uh, <laughs> as, we, as we have opportunity. Um, so... Story overview, a lot of you guys are, are well-versed, so I think you'll be able to piece together. I'll just kind of keep it quite concise because we are covering so much mileage here tonight. I'm not going to tell every story, but uh, just to whet the appetite, we get to talk about um, spies. We get to talk about, oh, what did happen there? We get to talk about spies. We get to um, hear of the Israelites' report as they spied out the land of Canaan that they are promised. And then their reluctance to enter. And then there was a huge, huge consequence for that, which involved 40 uh, years of wandering in the desert. So more wandering in the desert, where they were, between you know, Egypt and Canaan. Um, and then how there was just a failure to trust God consistently. They, they grumbled, they complained. There was another episode of a water from a rock. Um, but again, or not again, but Moses in this instance, um, there was disobedience in how that came about. Um, and then God had punishment again for the people wandering and complaining in the desert with this venomous snake that was held up on a bronze or a bronze serpent that was held up on a, on a pole should sound familiar. There's a leadership transition, a changing of the guards, so to speak, um, from, uh, the person Moses that we've been focusing a lot on to now Joshua, 
Um, and then they end up entering into the promised land. Um, Joshua and his generation die. The people forget about God. Um, they worship other gods and idols. Uh, the Israelites basically prostitute themselves before false religions and false gods. And God gives um, judges to help Israel uh, come back to him. And then again, just these cycles of rebellion and people's uh, faithlessness. Um, so that's where we're at. I'm trying to... Okay. Oh, yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the strange guy, I don't know if he's in the bottom left corner for you guys. He is for me. He's wearing the black baseball cap. He was reminding me in a private text that I should introduce him. So half of you guys who were here earlier, I've already introduced him. And the other half, I haven't. So this is Craig Bauman. He works with Ethnos Canada in uh, Saskatchewan. And he's been... Uh, greatly involved with a, a group of First Nations people in Prince Albert uh, for the last few years. And he and I work really closely um, week to week. Uh, we probably talk daily, at least. Um, most days anyway, other than weekends, I guess. <laughs> Even some weekends. But um, yeah, Craig is a, is a teammate on church engagement uh, with myself and another uh, couple units as well. And why is he here tonight? Um, well, he's good looking, so he's like the guy that's going to flip the slides and that kind of stuff for me. And then secondly, um, he's kind of a techie guy. So if there's, you know, issues running this, he's kind of here to provide a bit of uh, background support that way. Um, and he's also a highly relational uh, guy, uh, great in ministry and just relationship. And so, um, yeah, I thought I would kind of introduce you guys to uh, a broader spectrum of just myself or Jody and I. And uh, so, yeah, Craig also teaches Establish. He also does a lot of what I'm doing uh, in the Yukon here as well with uh, the curriculum, editing and developing um, and looking for opportunities for where God would continue to grow uh, Establish. So everybody, Craig, Craig, you can read everybody's name. <laughs> <laughs> And apparently my son is sitting in. I see him in the darkness there. <laughs> so, good evening, Hudson. Um, I keep kind of staring at my screen a little blankly here because my mouse seems to be invisible. <laughs> so I kind of catch it when it goes across, um, goes across the different icons, but I don't actually see where my oh, mouse is. I see Hudson now. <laughs> <laughs> So this is kind of annoying. So Craig, how do I make my mouse appear? <laughs> it work? Yeah. Hit escape. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. It's not. Um, Stop sharing your screen. I guess you can't get your mouse up to there to stop sharing. You can't get into that either. So, hmm. um, okay, just for a moment, I can. I'm going to pause, share. Just thank you for your patience, guys. <laughs> One second. Pause, share. So it's still. 
Is it like my computer is being too heavily loaded with information that it can't show a mouse? So this is your whole desktop, Brent, and you can't get it to show up at all? The mouse, yeah, it's kind of, I'm just, I got a sneaky mouse right now. Anyways, I'll just work with, <laughs> I've got like a message screen in the middle of my screen, so um, I'll just try and work with it. Everyone good? Everyone still hearing? Thumbs up? Okay, so let's dive in. Part one, our first, so we're, we're talking about with our hook that God is faithful to his promise and to his people. So God, um, in this first part, we're going to talk about God punishing and God providing. Um, so God has led the Israelites faithfully to this point. They are his chosen people. They're his set apart people. He led them out of bondage in Egypt to, uh, up to the promised land. Um, they've traveled a long way and now they're basically at the Canaan border. And that's the promised land that this is what was promised to Abraham. Um, God had provided and sustained them in the wilderness with food, with water, um, what were some of the, what were, how did he do that? What did he give them? Manna. Yeah, the manna. And some quail. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and then he brought them to the base of Mount Sinai where uh, the Ten Commandments were given. And there was, uh, God wanted them to, to trust and grow their faith there. He didn't give the Ten Commandments hoping that they could actually abide by them, but to point them to him, showing more of his attributes, how holy he is and how unholy people are. So now he wants them to experience even more of his promised blessings. And unfortunately, Israel is still the same. They're still sinful and they're still rebellious. So let's start by looking at what the Bible actually says of this promise to Abraham. So we're going to jump back uh, to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible again. Genesis chapter 12. You guys could go there with me. If somebody could read in chapter 12 of Genesis verses 2 and 3 and then 6 and 7 at the same right after. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now what's the other ones? 6-7, verses 6-7. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem, at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. There we have it. Straight from the Bible. Um, we're going to go now just a couple chapters ahead. Uh, 15, chapter 15 of Genesis. And verses 13 to 16.
Somebody else want to read that? Genesis 15, chap uh, chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Is that it? Uh, to sixteen. Sixteen. Okay. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So that's a little nugget to tuck aside, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. But here we have God, so in chapters, uh, chapter 12, promising, showing Abraham what he's going to do. And then again, unfolding a little further. First, you're going to be slaves. We've covered that story already. Um, and, but God was going to punish that nation. They're going to leave with great, great possessions. And so then they've traveled through the desert and, and uh, we're up to this lesson here tonight. And God is preparing to fulfill this promise that he gave Abraham in Genesis 12. Um, we're going to try, come on. Oh, I realize my screen's, I haven't resumed the sharing. Um, we are going to try and watch a video, if I can advance the slide here. Your screen is paused. Resume sharing. I'm doing this all off of an invisible mouse. <laughs> Aha, my mouse came back. That's nice. Okay, we're going to watch. Here's uh, God is faithful to his purposes or his promises and to his people and God punishes and provides. We're going to dive into the story of uh, Numbers, um, which is by the Bible Project. We've watched a few of those with you guys. We're going to watch one on Numbers and then another video a little bit later here. Okay, here's some of the bumbliness. <laughs> this is some of the story I should have showed you guys as I was giving the summary. The 12 spies spying out the great land of Canaan. Um, Joshua and Caleb, who uh, weren't intimidated by what they saw. Moses being disobedient um, in striking the rock to provide water a second time. And then uh, God sending the fiery serpents. <clears throat> and Moses holding up the bronze serpent. Wow. Okay. <laughs> what's different with this is I don't see <clears throat> what's coming. So it's, uh, I got to figure out a way to sort of prompt myself as I'm talking along here with you guys. <clears throat> this is where I'm at. <clears throat> So it's uh, six minutes. You guys got six minutes to listen to a video? <laughs> All right, let's go. The book of Numbers gets overlooked, partly because it has a really boring name, which is a shame. In the Hebrew tradition, the book's name is Bamidbar, which means in the wilderness. And it's an epic travelogue about Israel's journey through the desert on their way to the land promised to Abraham. Now this pilgrimage should only take about two weeks on foot, but instead it takes them about 40 years. That's crazy. It's practically half of someone's lifetime. Yeah, it's a very long camping trip with lots of interesting stories, but let's remember it's most helpful to back up and start with how this book is designed. Right. So the book is broken up into five sections. There are three wilderness locations broken up by two road trips that link all the pieces together. 
The first wilderness section is Mount Sinai, right here on the map. And then in the second section, they travel to a region called Paran. A whole bunch of things happen here in the wilderness of Paran. And then in this fourth section is Israel's road trip to Moab. The book ends with a large section in the wilderness of Moab, right across the Jordan River from the Promised Land. Now... Through all of these sections, the storyline just flows like a gripping, dramatic movie. Everything starts great, but then the trip goes horribly wrong, and it all ends with the final redemptive moment, the surprising act of God's grace. So let's jump into the story. It all begins at the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and we've become really familiar with this mountain. Yeah, if you remember, Israel came here after Egypt, and they formed a covenant with God here, got the Ten Commandments here, built the tabernacle here, and they've been at this mountain for one full year. And now they take a census to number the people as they prepare to leave. Right, and they're given these instructions for how to organize all those people in the camp. God's presence in the tabernacle, and then the tribe of Levi and the priests around it, and then the rest of the tribes around them. And this pattern is this visual symbol for how God's holiness is at the center of their existence as a people. And they're told that when the cloud of God's presence moves, they're to pack up and travel with it. Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant is carried by the Levites out in front, and then the tribe of Judah, and on and on. And this order is also a symbol for how God's holy presence is their leader and guide through the wilderness. We begin the second section of the book with enthusiasm as they leave Mount Sinai and travel up to Paran. God's with them, everything's organized. This is going to be great. But it's not great. After just three days on the road, the people are complaining about their hunger and thirst. And then even Moses' brother and sister start bad-mouthing him in front of all the people. Not a great start. But now we're into the third section, the wilderness of Paran. This is where they send the 12 spies to scout out the promised land. Two of those spies come back, and they're really optimistic. But the other ten are freaked out, and they don't trust God, and they go around saying, we're going to get annihilated in there. And so they start a mutiny, and they try to appoint a new leader who's going to take all the people back to Egypt. And so basically, they are refusing to go into the promised land, and God honors their choice. He says that this generation is going to wander for 40 years and die in the wilderness, and only their kids will get to enter the promised land. You know, this story here gets brought up many times in the Bible by different authors. Yeah, and it always serves as a reminder that while God remains faithful to his people and his promises, he will honor their choices. He'll, he'll let them waste their whole lives if they choose to live in rebellion. Okay, so the trip's been a disaster so far. And it gets worse here in this fourth section as they're traveling to Moab. Even Moses has a moment of rebellion and is disqualified from entering the promised land. Then there's another rebellion among the people that results in this snake attack. And what makes all these rebellions even worse is that every step of the way, God has been providing. He's been offering forgiveness. He's been giving them food and water and this crazy stuff called manna. Yeah, what is that stuff? Yeah, no, no idea. But in spite of all this, they keep complaining. And they say that they wish they had died in slavery in Egypt. If I was God... I would just give up on these guys. You would think. But that's what makes this story in the final section so surprising. Israel has just arrived in Moab, and the king of Moab is freaked out that this huge group of people is traveling through his land. So he hires this pagan sorcerer named Balaam to pronounce curses on them. This guy means business. Yeah, and so Balaam, he says, okay, I'm going to pray to the Hebrew god, and let's see what happens. And three different times he attempts to curse them, but each time he finds that he can utter only blessing. Most surprising is the last blessing, where he prophesies that out of Israel will rise a victorious king. And this king is somehow going to be connected to God's promise to Abraham to bless all nations 
through this family. So here's Israel rebelling down in the camp, totally unaware that up in the hills, God is protecting and even blessing them. The book ends here in Moab. Israel's getting ready to go into the promised land. They count up everyone again, just like at the beginning. They're leaving the old generation behind, including Moses. But before they leave Moses, he gives them his last words of warning and wisdom. And that speech is what the next book, Deuteronomy, is all about. This video is funded by 756 people. Thank you. <clears throat> um, there you have it. The book of Numbers. Any questions? <laughs> so <clears throat> we're going to focus in on, on God's promise, um, the spies and the wandering afterwards. Would you guys turn with me to the book of Numbers? Uh, still in the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And then it'll be the 13th chapter of Numbers. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 13. So I'm just going to skip a, a few places here. Um, 13 verse 1, it says, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. So then in verse 17, it says, when Moses sent them to explore Canaan, so Moses obeyed, drop down to uh, verse uh, 23. When they reached the valley of Eshcol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. Who's carried a, a, a cluster of grapes home on a pole between two men lately? Do you see the picture there, down in the middle? The big cluster of green grapes? What, is, what are we getting an idea of here? The richness of the land. Yeah, the richness. Is our God stingy? No, uh, we're seeing seeing in a sense a bit of a repeat of the of the Garden of Eden, where it was God, we saw that God is a good, good God. He is not stingy. And so this promised land, although it, we're still in the fall, totally, uh, is a good land. Um, we often hear from the Bible where it says it's a land flowing with milk and honey. So it's a rich land, Judy. Yeah, exactly. And and we see this cluster of grapes that is uh, takes a, a pole and two men to carry it out. Um, down in verse 27, after they spied out the land, so you can see them taking off in the uh, left-hand slide there, a bunch of men, a representation from um, each of the tribe, ancestral tribe. In verse 27 it says, They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. There you go. The Bible says it. It's a good place. The promised land is indeed a, a beautiful promised land. Um, so they found, um, one of your questions there, what are some of the, I kind of answered it for you, <laughs> sorry. Uh, what are some of the positive things that the spies found? They, they found a land, it says right here in the Bible in verse 27, a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and the, the proof, they brought these, these grapes and these figs and pomegranates, it says in verse 23. 
so here they are. They're looking at it. They're, they can basically, they are tasting in a sense. Um, how was God faithful to his promise uh, about the land of Canaan that he talked to uh, with Abraham back in uh, Genesis? Was he faithful to lead them? I mean, here they are standing at the border. He led them. Did he let anybody totally destroy them, even for the years of slavery? Did Pharaoh crush them to where they became extinct? No. So he led them. He protected them. Um, when they got to the desert and they just left in a hurry when they crossed, uh, crossed um, the Red Sea, they didn't have all, all the means of providing food and water for themselves. So who did? God did. He provided for them not only food and water, um, but I believe we'll be looking at it here later as well, but their clothes didn't wear out. Um, so God led them, he protected them, and he provided for them continually over many years to fulfill his promise. Why could God just simply give the land? What do we know of God that, that he could do that? As the creator, he owned it. That's right. Yeah, he's the owner. He's the creator. He owned it. Anything we create or make with our hands, fashion with our hands, we consider it ours. God made the world. And he's also the ultimate ruler. So he doesn't need to consult or, or ask uh, somebody else if he can give it. Uh, it's his to give. So they don't all only say that the land is flowing with milk and honey. Let's uh, see what else they talk about here. Um, what does it say? Following just after verse, where was it there? Uh, yeah, just after verse 27. Verse 28. Somebody want to read um, just that one verse? But the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Actually, could you just keep reading all the way to 33, Judy? Would you mind? The Amalekites live in the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Cable, uh, Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. And then in chapter 14, the first few verses says, That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or this desert! Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Wow. It's not like they hadn't experienced anything good of God up to this point. Is that true? 
They experienced so much goodness of God up to this point. Have they not experienced his faithfulness that what he said he would do? Why did the people give a bad report? Why did the spies specifically give a bad report? Fear. Fear, Judy says. They focus more on the people in the land rather than the God who wanted to give them the land. Yeah. Yeah, they were, they were looking horizontally. They lost sight of their vertical perspective. In other words, like you said, looking at the people and not God. Yeah. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't believe that God could give them what he promised. They didn't, um, they didn't trust God, thinking that he could do what he said. And this resulted in, ultimately, rebellion against God. He wanted them to take it. He told them to take it. This was the promise. God ensures that his promises come to pass. Um, but there were two spies who believed differently. Let's uh, read in Numbers 14, 6 to 9. Could somebody tackle that one for me? Numbers four, chapter 14, verses 6 to 9. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephthah, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Hmm. Do not be afraid of them. So this is Joshua and Caleb. How do they respond, um, and how does it affirm their faith in God's ownership and true ruler rulership? Um, very strongly, like it says, they tore their clothes. So obviously, they were very distressed at the. Um, attitude of the other spies and then fully in confidence of God that he would give them the land. Yeah. And in verse 7 there, how many of the Israelites did they speak to? All of them. Yeah, the entire Israelite assembly. So what was that number? Any 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 guesses? Between 2 and 3 million? Yeah. It was, it wasn't, we're not talking like a little general assembly here. We're talking a big assembly. So yeah, they, they spoke boldly to the entire, you know, roughly two and a half million people affirming God's promise and their need to obey him. Um, if the Lord is pleased with us, he, it says here in verse eight, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the Bible says. You know, I like looking at this verse when we talk of uh, humility and pride. Are, are Caleb and Joshua, this is a bonus question, are Caleb and Joshua acting proudly or humbly? Humbly. Why is it humble? So they sound kind of uh, sure of themselves. Well, 
we kind of said, Lord willing, if God is pleased with us, uh, you will give us the land. In fact, I think in this version it says, uh, they are help only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. They, you know, they said that these, uh, this, the inhabitants there are nothing compared to the God who's led them through the wilderness all those years. Yeah, yeah. He's standing, it's like the hymn, he's standing on the promises of God. He knew that God promised this land to them. He, he was remembering all the things that God had led them through. Um, he, was, he was being humble, saying, if, if we please him, so if we're obedient, um, he will give it. Not because we've earned it, because he will do it. His protection is with us. Um, I always like looking at this as, as a bit of a plug for humility. Sometimes believers think humility is just groveling. This is such a great example of, of godly humility. In confidence, they, they stood boldly before two and a half million people affirming his promise. They saw the same fortified cities and the same giants, but they saw them nothing in comparison to God. Again, as it says there at the last verse, uh, verse 9, their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. Um, so you guys see that difference. I, I love that. It's like, as believers, we can be confident in God's promises. Even during this, this weird time right now, we can be confident in God's promises. Um, he will not let anything befall us that he didn't say yes to. So we know we've got a good, good father uh, who is faithful to his promises. And that's who we look to. So we can humbly be confident as well, can't we? So instead of the greater Israelite nation humbling themselves and believing that God would ensure his promise of giving them the land, Israel decided to pick up stones and actually try to kill Joshua and Caleb. Can you imagine? But God protected them. Uh, his glory, it says <clears throat> in verse 10 there, his glory appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites, and that was probably enough to, to shock them, and, and they stopped. Um, Then God brought judgment on Israel instead of giving them the blessing. They would all now wander in the wilderness for 40 years until anyone currently 20 or older was passed away or dead. Um, none but Caleb and Joshua and those under 20 entered Canaan after those 40 years. So the younger generation would be the ones to enjoy the promised land and its blessing. How would you have felt at receiving this punishment? Well, if I were Joshua and Caleb, I would be a tad upset. Yeah, I would. Just, you know, so close, you know, and feeling confident that God would give it to them. And uh, now we have to wander and wait another 40 years. Yeah. Anybody else? How would you feel? You've been wandering for this time. You've just, you've had some crazy miracles you've experienced of God. Uh, you see the promised land. You see the fruits of the promised land. And now it's like, guess what? I mean, nobody here is under 20. Well, a couple are. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, most of us wouldn't make it, wouldn't have made it. 
Back out you go. You didn't believe me. Is it there? Yeah. I would think. So, in the midst of those 40 years of wandering, that, that punishment, the judgment they received, there's another example of God's provision, yet even in those 40 years of wandering. Um, turn with me ahead, another book, uh, to the book of Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, chapter 29. You can keep, if your finger has still it in Numbers, we'll flip back there eventually, or pretty soon here actually. Deuteronomy 29, uh, verses 2, 3, and 5. Somebody want to read that for me? summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did to e did in Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his officials, and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw those great trials, those signs, and great wonders. Yet the Lord says, During the forty years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. So there you have it. <clears throat> God provided, he protected, he supplied, he satisfied for all those years. I mean, I can't get my $140 Solomon shoes to last a year. <laughs> my Keens, I'm walking out of them now. I've had those about five years. Um, but 40 years? And the clothes that they wore, the shoes, as they left, still good. I wonder if we could get our hands onto those. <laughs> God was faithful. He, he, he cared about the details. It's not like he just, again, do we have a stingy God? Did he just barely get them there, you know, all emaciated and, and you know, everyone's under 90 pounds kind of thing with uh, nothing but whatever they could find in the wilderness to cover themselves? No, they, they arrived healthy and out they go again. So, again, they're just being reminded <laughs> we have a faithful God. Why was God so merciful and gracious to them, you guys? He withheld so much punishment. That was his mercy. And yet, in his grace, he gave them much more. Why? Because of his love for them, and they created his image. Yeah, for sure. And the promise he made way back to Abram. Yeah, he's faithful to his promise. I would say for his namesake. For his namesake, yeah. I think that that is a massive part of the equation here. He is, he is faithful even when we are not faithful. What does it say? Look at verse 6 there, the, the second half of it there. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God, so that they would know he is their God, the God who does these things, provides, protects, supplies, satisfies, um, for his name's sake, as Andrew said. God wanted that through all of this, they would choose to trust him, that they would look to the, the coming deliverer 
and, and, and believe him completely on his word with their lives, not just their, their uh, need for food and water and clothing, but for their eternal life as well. Well, they wandered. They journeyed up to the edge of Canaan. They ran out of water. And as you can expect, they complained against Moses again, as was their habit. And this was after these 40 years of, like a previous 40 years of, of a daily provision. God daily providing this manna. Let's read what God tells Moses to do. We're going to flip back now for those of you that kept your finger at Numbers. We'll go to Numbers chapter 20. <clears throat> 20 verses 8 to 12. You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there, and it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. Then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. Listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand and struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock, livestock drank to the fill. How far? Uh, 12 as well. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I am giving them. So what was in the first part of that? What was God's solution to Israel's need? They were thirsty. To provide them from the rock. Yep, provide. He says um, in the second half of verse 8 there, Speak to the rock, and it will pour out its water. So speak. Why do you think Moses and Aaron called them rebels at this point? Because that's what they are. They're rebelling against God. <laughs> Can you imagine being Moses leading these hard-headed people? <laughs> you... Idiots, how many times must you see God prove himself? <laughs> you rebels. I mean, how many times did they need to see before they would believe? So I think, you know, he called them rebel, rebels because of their continued unbelief and complaining. Did Moses and Aaron follow God's command that we read in verse 8? No, because he struck the rock. Yeah. What did God, how did God tell them to extract the water? Speak. Speak. And they struck the rock. So they defied God. And I don't know what was going on in Moses' head there. Was he getting big on himself? Thinking, you know, we must bring water out of this rock here? He says it there after he says, rebels, must we bring the water out of this rock? Really, did he have anything to do with it? He wanted to. He struck it. But God just said, speak, because God was going to do it. 
So they, yeah, they struck it instead of speaking as God commanded. Did you notice the grace of God? What happened still? The water came. The water came. But they disobeyed. That's God's grace. He, he still gave, yet again, when they were deserving of punishment. So not only not water, that's what they deserved. They didn't earn the water. They probably deserved, uh, you know, a fire. <laughs> but he still gave them water. He was gracious. For all two and a half million of them and their livestock to their fill. So this is the second time water came from the rock. The first time was back in Exodus chapter 17. So regrettably, because Moses and Aaron did not follow God's instructions, they kept a proud posture. God told them neither of them would enter into the promised land. Can you imagine being Moses here, you guys? You too have experienced so many things. You've endured so many things. And now you can't enter the promised land. What attributes do you think God was demonstrating or revealing in this decision? When it talks about his holiness, um, Moses, out of anger at the rebellion of the people, just was so distraught that he just, you know, wasn't thinking when he did it. But God, in his mercy also, he continued to give it to him. But holiness, he's talking about his holiness here. Yeah, that, that's what I'm seeing. I mean, I feel free to continue, you, the rest of you guys to contribute to that. I do believe he was demonstrating his holiness again. He's to be obeyed and it's not to be taken lightly. I mean, we say it to our kids, partial obedience isn't obedience. <laughs> <laughs> we get that from the Bible. <laughs> God was demonstrating his holiness because he wasn't obeyed. Um, despite God's visible punishment, not only on them, but all sinners, regardless of their position, uh, we're, Israel continued to defy it again. Let's, I just want to dive into that, into... Uh, Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. So they're complaining. What's going to happen? <clears throat> Numbers 21, verses 4 and 5. Who could read that? I'll read it. Um, they traveled from Mount Or along the route to the Red Sea, to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. So what is this new level of their contempt? <laughs> they grew impatient. They spoke against Moses and God. They blamed God and Moses for being in the wilderness, still refusing to take responsibility for their sin. And they threw God's gracious gift of food back in his face and said their soul loathes it and it's worthless. The nerve, hey? 
God would say, well, tomorrow night you're cooking. <laughs> what, what indignation, hey? So what was the result? Let's read a few more verses here. Verses 6 to 9. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. If anyone who is bitten, anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Here you go. As Israel humbled himself, humbled themselves, how was God gracious? He provided a way from them for them to be delivered from death. That's right. Yeah. This bronze serpent. Make it Moses, hold it up. Anyone who looks at it will be healed. How was this merciful? They didn't deserve it. Yeah, they deserved to continue to be bitten. They just threw everything back up at God's face and Moses, but God being the big one. And, uh, and God still provided a way out. A faith-building exercise, perhaps, is kind of how I've seen it in the past. It's like, oh, you have little faith. Here, I'll give you a real easy thing. I'm going to get a snake, put on a stick, hold it up. Um, you don't deserve this. But please listen. It wasn't the bronze snake that gave him life. It's only God, because he is the source of life. As he created Adam and Eve, the mother of all living, and every one of us. He's a source of life. Only God could give them life. When they looked at the bronze snake, it was an act of obedience. It was an act of repentance and faith towards God. Because of this outward expression of their heart, um, God healed them. God was clear. Look at the bronze snake. You live. You don't, you die. What does that sound familiar to that you've heard in our teaching? That uh, God uh, provided the Passover lamb and uh, for them to put uh, the blood over the and around the doors of their homes. If uh, and they had to stay indoors uh, uh, for that night. And if they wouldn't, they would have had their firstborn die in the same way that the Egyptians would. Yeah, very good. Exactly. Obey, you live, you don't. There's going to be loss. <clears throat> Just like the, the Noah's Ark. You get in, you live, you don't, you die. You look at the snake, you'll be healed, you'll live. You don't, you die. <clears throat> so the, the, this image of the bronze snake comes up in a later lesson related to the deliverer. When we, um, when we talk about, this is a little sidebar for you guys, when we um, talk about established and foundational Bible teaching, that's actually the verse that we, is it John 3, 14 and 15? Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's actually one of the verses that we use when we talk about the importance of foundational learning 
It's like, how do you understand what that statement means unless we, you've been here in the Old Testament and, and led up to this point? Um, you know, often when we point new believers or people that are interested in, in, in uh, coming to Christ, we point them to the book of John. They come across that and they're wondering, what's about this snake? What's about Moses and the son of man is going to be lifted up? Is there a son of daughter? Um, so this, here we are. We're, we're at the verse in Numbers where uh, this happens and, and we get clarity. So when we get to John, we'll be like, oh yeah, back in Numbers, the Israelites rebelled. They were unfaithful. That's why Moses had to do that. That's why in John, da 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 dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you see, the, see how this is coming together? All right, that's a sidebar, coming back. So um, let's think about it. Let's pause to see God's perfect blend of mercy and judgment. Um, Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, I can just read it, um, says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And then in Psalms 18, verse 30, feel free to jot these down uh, to reference them later. It's not my word, it's the Bible. It says, As for God, his way is perfect. So God's got his ways. He is the judge of the earth. He will do right. That's what it says in Genesis. The word is our authority. Psalms 18, uh, verse 30, As for God, his way is perfect. Can we judge God? Can we say that his ways are imperfect? What did we see in Adam and in, in the garden with Adam and Eve? He made perfection. His ways as well are perfect. <clears throat> so we can't say, looking at this, this scene here right now, and say, man, God, God did them wrong. They were right there. They just made a little mistake and he sent them out. And, you know, and then he got so uptight when, when Moses struck the rock and he couldn't enter. And then now they're complaining about the food. And, and uh, oh man, it seems like God was harsh. Was God harsh? We've, we've been tracking with the Israelites now a while. Was God, was God unjust? Seeing some, some of these. <laughs> Katie and Kevin are veiled. I can't see what they're doing. <laughs> no, God wasn't, wasn't unjust, was he? He wasn't unfair, was he? How are we or our society, how, how do we or our society act like the people of Israel? What are, what are some nice, real good overlaps here? Do we complain? Um, I would say that one of the things is uh, the whole idea of population control. That uh, uh, people say that oh, we can't let the earth go beyond a, a certain amount of people because we won't have enough uh, food to feed everyone and stuff like that we we just can't sustain beyond a certain number of people and it's really just looking at man's capability and there's no trust in god to to provide hmm. uh, the people he, he allows to be born on this earth yeah that's a good one i'm hearing that right now with covid19 i've heard that very statement it's mother nature calling the human herd 
What else? How else are we like the Israelites? I know for myself, when something hard comes along, it is my natural reaction is to go, like, why is this happening to me? Hmm. And it's, yeah, wondering, yeah, or you get asked, you know, why is this happening to me? Or why hasn't this become easier? Rather than going to him first and going, okay, I choose to trust you that you will help me through this. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. Can we not also gloss? Oh, yeah. Becky, was that you? No, that was me. I just oh, I think, too, just thinking of the, uh, um, I'm going to say herd mentality. You know, there was two men that stood against what was happening. And here's the rest of the population have a God. And yet God has been merciful to those people. And we're very much like that to follow the... Um, the ways of the world. Yeah. Yeah. And I think related uh, just to the being the the man of what did you say the soul detested or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. How often do we, you know, get something and it seems just amazing? And the next day, it seems like it's not good enough, hmm. you know, and uh, um, I just see, I, I mean, you see that constantly. Yeah. Yeah, it's human nature. <laughs> Blame, complain, things are better elsewhere, you gloss over, you, 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 we're, we're, we're self-swindlers, you know. Uh, we, I got that from this book, uh, <laughs> Dangerous Calling. It's like, we, we are our best self-swindlers. Here they are saying, it was better in Egypt. Even when we got more oppressed and had to pack our own bricks, it was better there. We are our own best self-swindlers. Um, how, do we, how do we today struggle with God's balance of mercy and judgment? A little bit. Maybe that takes a little more thinking. <laughs> how do we struggle... With God's balance of mercy and judgment. Um, we like to uh, receive God's mercy, but prefer if other people are judged. <laughs> Touche. A lot of times we probably presume on his mercy too, thinking that he ought to always be merciful. Yeah, I've heard that a lot, hey? Like coming up of like, well, I tried to live a good life and if the good man upstairs is going to, you know, be as loving as I hear he is, I'm sure I'll be all right. We sort of think we're owed it. Hmm. Yeah, we want one without the other. I think also we might see, you know, God's discipline as as somehow proof of uh, that He's not merciful, or that He, you know, 
Somehow his love is left you or something like that. Yeah, it, it, uh, it negates all, all the goodness, but people are, again, so quick to forget of all the goodness. Right on, you guys. I don't want to cut anybody off there. Um, so that, yeah, that, that's just wrapping up uh, the point one there of God punishes, punishes and God provides. Um, so let's dive into the second part here. Some cycles of rebellion that we're going to see, and, and uh, within that we're going to see a counterfeit rule by Satan. Um, and continue to see how God will ensure that his promises will unfold, because he is faithful to his promises and to his people. Um, so near the end of the 40 years of wandering, as God led them up to the eastern border of Canaan, Moses could see the promised land. We see him there in the middle middle image there, Moses looking into the promised land, but he couldn't enter it. He disobeyed. So after Moses died, God brought up Joshua to lead Israel into Canaan. Uh, Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. So Canaan was small, the, the, na- or the area of Canaan was small, but there was many different peoples that lived there. Um, many different languages, cultures, false religions, um, kings, cities, armies. Um, Joshua chapters 1 through 12 describe stories of the many battles as the Israelites entered the promised land. So good, a good thing to read if you want to have uh, some battle stories, uh, Joshua chapters 1 to 12. Um, we're just going to kind of piecemeal it here. Uh, Joshua chapter 11. If you could go there with me. <clears throat> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Joshua. Joshua 11. Verse uh, 23. Everybody so Joshua took control of the entire land just as the Lord had instructed Moses. He gave it to the people of Israel as their special possession, dividing the land among the tribes. So the land finally had rest from war. So there we go. As God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob hundreds of years earlier, he made it happen. Lovingly, he gave the land to Israel, the kingdoms in Canaan. And then it rested from war. There was peace. God gave, or God required Israel to destroy all the people of Canaan, giving Israel their cities, their homes, their livestock, their gardens. Um, you can uh, reference some of this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, verses 1 and 2, verse, uh, chapter 20, verses 16 and 18 as well. Uh, so Israel inherited a very prosperous land, um, just as God promised. This wasn't uh, a judgment on all, or sorry, this was a judgment on all of Canaan for their sin. Um, sometimes people look at this part and they're like, wow, that seems harsh. Like, yeah, they got the promised land, but what about, what about those other guys? Well, let me tell you, they were neither innocent nor ignorant of the God of heaven and earth, the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's subtle, but it's in the Bible. They too rejected God. They knew much of him through the Israelites, uh, uh, through the Israelites' history. Um, You can read that in Joshua chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. The Most High 
the Most High God actively rules over all the kingdoms of all men and gives them to whomever he wants. Um, there was, uh, I don't know if I have it down here, but there was a lady in the land of Canaan and she actually says, uh, we heard, we heard what happened in Egypt. We heard how he conquered these other nations. Um, and so word traveled back then, you know, it's like, it's like when I lived in Papua New Guinea, there wasn't a whole lot of technology in place to spread word, but word of mouth is, I kid you not, when it's juicy, it flies. And, uh, and you know what? The news of the Israelites was juicy news. Um, and, and they didn't need um, texting or landlines or anything to get the news into Canaan of who their God was. They knew. Um, and so this too is a judgment on, on them for not turning and humbling themselves before God. Um, let's read in Joshua, switching gears going forward here a bit. Read Joshua chapter 22, verse 5. Be very careful to keep the commandments and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. And then 24, 14 to 16. <clears throat> so fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols of your ancestors. The idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors? Would you prefer the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. The people replied, We would never abandon the Lord and serve other gods. So the people served God while Joshua lived. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. <clears throat> Joshua had challenged the people of Israel, choose whom you will serve. They say that they will serve the Lord. Um, Joshua, or sorry, Judges chapter 2. It's the next book. You could flip there with me. See, this is what I was talking about. I hope you had your spiritual seatbelts buckled up. We're going to be <laughs> traveling the distance here in the Bible tonight. <clears throat> Judges chapter 2, uh, verse 7. It says here, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. So they were faithful. Joshua was a good leader. He, he pointed them towards God. The people wanted to follow God during his rule, um, and they did. Unfortunately, what happened? <laughs> Do we know the story? Israel soon forgot, again, who God was and turned away from him. I want to take you guys again to another Bible project a video. They just do such a good, concise summary. We're going to look at the book of Judges. It'll give a quick overview. And, and we're going to look at these cycles of rebellion um, that just continue again and again.
<clears throat> Seven minutes. The book of Judges. So remember, after Joshua led the tribes of Israel into the promised land, he called them to be faithful to their covenant with God by obeying the commands of the Torah. And if they do this, they will show all the other nations what God is like. So Judges begins with the death of Joshua and basically tells the story of Israel's total failure. The book's name comes from the type of leaders Israel had in this period. Before they had any kings, the tribes were all governed by these judges. Now, don't think of a courtroom. These were regional political military leaders, more like a tribal chieftain. And you need to be warned, the book of Judges is very disturbing and violent. It tells the tragic tale of Israel's moral corruption, of its bad leadership, and basically how they become no different than the Canaanites. But this sad story is also meant to generate hope for the future. And you can see this in how the book's designed. There's a large introduction that sets the stage for Israel's failure as they don't drive out the remaining Canaanites. Then the large main section of the book has stories about the growing corruption of Israel's judges. And the progression here shows how Israel's leaders go from pretty good to okay to bad to worse. The concluding section is really disturbing and shows the corruption of the people of Israel as a whole. So let's dive in and we can explore each part a bit more. The opening section begins with the tribes of Israel in their territories in the Promised Land. And while Joshua defeated some key Canaanite towns, there was still a lot of land to be taken and lots of Canaanites living in those areas. And so chapter 1 gives a long list of Canaanite groups and towns that Israel just failed to drive out from the land. Now, remember, the whole point of driving out the Canaanites was to avoid their moral corruption and their way of worshipping the gods through child sacrifice. God had called Israel to be a holy people, and that does not happen. Chapter 2 describes how Israel just moved in alongside the Canaanites and adopted all their cultural and religious practices. And it's right here that the story stops. For nearly a whole chapter, the narrator gives us an overview of everything that's about to happen in the body of the book. This part of Israel's history, the narrator says, was a series of cycles moving in a downward spiral. So Israel became like the Canaanites, and so they would sin against God. So God would allow them to be conquered and oppressed by the Canaanites, and eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and repent. So God would raise up a deliverer, a judge, from among Israel who would defeat the enemy and bring about an era of peace. But eventually Israel would sin again, and it would all start over. This cycle provides the literary design and flow for the next main section of the book. It gets repeated for each of the six main judges whose stories are told here. Now the stories of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, they are epic adventures. They're also extremely bloody stories. Either the judge themselves or people who helped the judge, they defeat their enemies and deliver the people of Israel. The stories about the next three judges are longer, and they focus in on the character flaws of the judges, which get increasingly worse. So Gideon, he begins pretty well. He's a coward of a man, but he eventually comes to trust that God can save Israel through him. And so he defeats a huge army of Midianites with only 300 men carrying torches and clay pots. But Gideon has a nasty temper, and he murders a bunch of fellow Israelites for not helping him in his battle, 
And then it all goes downhill from there. He makes an idol from the gold that he won in his battles. And then after he dies, all Israel worships the idol as a god, and the cycle begins again. The next main judge is Jephthah, who's something of a mafia thug living up in the hills. And when things get really bad for Israel, the elders come to him begging for his help. And Jephthah was a very effective leader. He won lots of battles against the Ammonites, but he was so unfamiliar with the God of Israel, he treats him like a Canaanite God. He vows to sacrifice his daughter if he wins the battle. This tragic story, it shows just how far Israel has fallen. They no longer know the character of their own God, which leads to murder and to false worship. The last judge, Samson, is by far the worst. His life began full of promise, but he has no regard for the God of Israel. He was promiscuous, violent, and arrogant. He did win brutally strategic victories over the Philistines, but only at the expense of his own integrity, and his life ends in a violent rush of mass murder. Now, a quick note. Here, you'll notice a repeated theme in the main section of the book, that at key moments, God's Spirit will empower each of these judges to accomplish these great acts of deliverance. Now, the fact that God uses these really screwed up people doesn't mean he endorses all or even any of their decisions. God is committed first and foremost to saving his people, but all he has to work with is these corrupt leaders. And so work with them, he does. This whole section is designed to show just how bad things have gotten. You can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart anymore. And that's just the leaders. The final section shows Israel as a whole hitting bottom. There are two tragic stories here, and they are not for the faint of heart. They're structured by this key line that gets repeated four times at the close of the book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The first story is about an Israelite named Micah who builds a private temple to an idol, and that gets plundered by a private army sent from the tribe of Dan. So they come and they steal everything, and then they go and burn down the peaceful city of Laish and murder all of its inhabitants. It's a horrifying story. When Israel forgets its God, might makes right. The final story of the book is even worse. It's a shocking tale of sexual abuse and violence, which all leads to Israel's first civil war. It's very disturbing. And that's the point. These stories are meant to serve as a warning. Israel's descent into self-destruction is a result of turning away from the God who loves them and saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And now Israel needs to be delivered again from themselves. The only glimmer of hope in this story is found in this repeated line in the last part of the book. It actually forms the last sentence of the story. Israel has no king. And so the stage is set for the following books to tell the origins of King David's family, the book of Ruth, and also the origins of kingship itself in Israel, the book of 1 Samuel. But the story of Judges has value as a tragedy. It's a sobering explanation of the human condition, and ultimately it points out the need for God's grace to send a king who will rescue his people. And that's the book of Judges. What do you guys think of that? It's not surprising that... Uh... Sunday school lessons are very selective uh, in the book of Judges. Yeah. 
Yeah, good point. It's pretty brutal. Um, I really like these videos. They're super, I mean, they're so condensed for what they cover. I mean, I know if you guys are ever doing foundational teaching in any setting that's not conducive to this, uh, they, these guys, if you like their stuff, they do sell stuff on like, like poster kind of stuff. Like I have some rip apart ones that are like, um, you color on them. There's ones that are in a book that are bound. Harrison has a big book of it. I have a big book of it. So kind of fun to use these and, and, and just even talk through it. It kind of, it's a cool, it looks just like this. It, it shows the full, the full coloring. Um, handy to know when you're in the communities and you don't have huge internet access, right? <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was a, a just this down downward spiral, and and I like that one part where it has the sort of the wind there, and it says the empowerment of God's spirit does not equate to an endorsement of human choices, because it keeps coming back to to our hook that God is faithful to His promises and to His people. Um, it's it's not uh, yeah, it's not because God is saying what you're doing is the right thing. I mean, that's the same thing for us today. It's not because we're making. Um, all the right choices that, that God's grace is displayed on our life. It's because God's grace is displayed on our life because he's chosen it to be that way. Uh, of course, there's choices we make that, that are, <laughs> have consequences as we realize. But um, anyways, let's, let's uh, jump into uh, Judges chapter 2. Um, I'll have it up here, I think, on the screen as well, if it'll let me. No. There we go. Uh, we'll be Judges chapter 2, verses uh, 10 to 12. Yeah, 10, 11, and 12. Judges in the right place here. I think I've mixed this up. Um, sorry, I said 12. I meant to say Judges 2. Are you guys there? Because I'm not there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Could someone read that, please? After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. 13 says they abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Hmm. In some ways, that's what it feels like nowadays. People say, like, uh, people don't even, the younger people don't even know anything about God or Jesus, or um, the, what scripture is, or churches, um, go to church. And this generation is not knowing what we knew and what we grew up with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they don't know the Lord, what, what he had done for Israel, what he had done for us. They totally lost base. Yeah, we have underlined here, the Israelites did evil, they forsook the Lord, they followed and worshipped various gods. Um, so after Joshua and his generation died, as we were saying, the Israelites turned away from God again. They worshipped the idols of the nations around them, <clears throat> even killing their children as an offering. 
we can see the one who's masquerading behind the scene here of this evil, can't we? Um, so here's a sample of the cycle of rebellion, oppression, and repentance described as described in the video. Um, let's look at uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 14 to 19. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers... They quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to the ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refuse to give up their evil practices in stubborn ways. So do you see this toilet bowl kind of worse cycle, worse cycle, worse cycle, deeper, deeper, deeper. Their evils, it says they're worse, even more corrupt than those of their fathers. It's getting worse. Um, where am I here? Oh, thank you. Um, how do we see God's active rule in these verses? We see a full circle and a half here. Yeah. God only brings nations to punish them. Um, He fights or he's against them when they go out to fight. But then also he's greatly merciful to them in providing a judge who will help deliver them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's disciplining them. <laughs> and then he sends the judges. The judges point them back to God. The judge dies. They turn their backs again and get worse. <clears throat> After God punished them, they would humble themselves. They'd call out. God was gracious to raise up another judge to save them from their enemies. <clears throat> so Israel responded to God's grace the Bible says, as they followed God, uh, or they followed God only as long as the judge lived, but when they died, they returned to the false gods and did even worse. So for like 400 years, some 10 judges, the cycle went like this, and Israel got worse and worse. You know, Israel sinned, God removed his protection and allowed Israel's enemies to be uh, to punish them. He had pity on them because of their oppression and their groaning as they called out under under oppression. God sent them a judge to lead them and save them from their enemies. There was a season of peace. And then the cycle repeated, growing evil each time. As we dig deeper, the most high God was rightfully angry with them because they dishonored their rightful owner. They didn't worship him alone. They kept replacing him. Um, They forgot as they existed for him alone and were there because of his favor and his blessing, not because of anything within themselves. It wasn't their good works by any stretch of the imagination. And they attempted to set them up 
uh, set themselves up in pride in, in place of God as ruler. Remember, what is the theme, the theme verse for established? Can, a pop quiz, anybody remember it? John? The, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that you might have life and life more abundantly or somewhere along that line. That's right. That's right. Yeah, exactly. We have, we have the enemy who's to kill, steal, and destroy. And then we have um, the deliverer who came to give life and give it to the full. So I just want to focus on the first half of that. That's John 10.10. 10. Um, the enemy is working hard behind the scenes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Satan is working against God's image bearers, his chosen people here in God's plans. It, it's his enemy. It's his adversary. He's going to strike where, um, in a sense, it would hurt most those who bear God's image. Um, Israel's sinful behavior reflects this one who's working behind the scenes, doesn't it? I mean, if they're sacrificing their children... And doing evil is just a reflection of the evil one, the enemy. <clears throat> what cycles today, let's bring this back down to our world here now, what are our, <laughs> our time. Uh, what cycles of rebellion do we see in our society today? Or you could play, you could play the whole circle, you know, the, the rebellion, the turning to God, and the forgetting of God. Where, where do we see or have you guys witnessed that pattern in, our, in your lifetime? <clears throat> well, apparently after every major you know, earthquake or hurricane, whenever there's a renewed interest in all things uh, Christianity and then, you know, as soon as things are back to normal, it tends to fade. So I guess that is sort of a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's the tsunami. In 9-11. Yeah. <clears throat> and then today, we got COVID-19. Um, at birth... We are all in Adam and we're all born in bondage to Satan's rule. Satan grips people through comfort uh, or fear, but the end goal is always the same, to kill and destroy. And ultimately, <clears throat> to get people to the lake of fire where he is destined for. But God de graciously desires to set us free, rescuing us from uh, the cruel tyrant, to bless us within himself. This is our choice. God doesn't force himself on us. And we have that choice, or we have that ability to say, will we allow him? Satan is a counterfeit ruler as, as a part of that cycle of rebellion. As we see that spiral, Satan's right there to try and, and get the people to trip up and fall um, out of relationship of God. But God continues to remain faithful to his promise and to his people for his name's sake. I'm glad you brought that up, Andrew. <clears throat> um, we're going to jump into the third section here. An eternal king and a human king. Um, 
So God raised Israel up to proclaim his word and to bring his deliverer to all nations. Um, But they continually rebelled against God's plan in every way, or in most every way. They rejected the truth for themselves, and they refused to share it with the nations. Um, Israel rejects God as their king, and they ask for a human king. Samuel was Israel's last judge at the time. Um, We're not going to dive into um, Samuel a whole lot here. Um, We do have him on on our big timeline, which I don't have this one filled out yet. I don't know if you guys probably can't see this much. But um, over here at 1500, we have Moses, Aaron, and Joshua, Judges, and Samuel. So if we get back in the church basement, I'll uh, get to write it up more easily for you guys. Or I should get it onto a PowerPoint. (laughs) Um, So let's go to the book of Samuel. Um, He was the last judge, as I was saying. Uh, And with him, at that time, they went one step further. And this is after 400 years of their vicious cycle of rejecting God. Uh, So let's read what they did. First book of Samuel, so 1 Samuel chapter 8. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then 1 Samuel chapter 8. Could somebody read verses 4 to 7? So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. What does a king do for people? Protect, provide. (laughs) Yeah, keep going. (laughs) Lead. (laughs) Demand taxes. (laughs) Oppress. Okay, you guys just switched gears there. I liked where you were. No, but you're true. <laughs> that first part, up until taxes and oppress, who does that sound? Who does that sound like? God. Yeah. As a good king. Now, as you mentioned, those other two, and you could keep going. Who does that sound like? What kind of a king? Human? Human king? Um, I mean, since God rescued Israel from captivity in Egypt, he was their king. As their king, you guys nailed it. He led them, he protected them, he ruled over them. Uh, He gave them so much, he provided for them. But Israel rejected this good king, God. They wanted a human king instead of God, and they were worshiping false gods instead of the true God. So from this, it seems that Israel didn't really want to be different as in God's set-apart people. They, they wanted to be like other nations that had kings. Was it because of the influence, the peer pressure, so to speak, of the pagan nations around them? God didn't abandon his plan through Israel. He first provided them with King Saul, But when when Saul refused to humble himself, 
God raised up another king in his place, King David, a man after his own heart. And then King Solomon, uh, the kingdom split after Solomon died. Uh, there was Israel, ten tribes, Judah, two tribes. Um, as the timeline continues here with uh, Samuel, back here at 1,000, we would have Saul, David, and Solomon, the kings. I don't know if you're able to sort of... Sorry, I'll get a slide. We'll get a slide going for this, but for if you can make it out. So we've traveled from eternal God right to here now with the judges. <clears throat> um, so David was described as a man after God's own heart. Um, let's read. It's still in the book of Samuel. First Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. Don't take my word for it. But, it. but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So here we have Samuel. There's a picture back here. Samuel anointing Saul. Um, and now we're talking about... Um, do I have the image here? Uh, why aren't you jumping forward for me? Um, sorry, I thought I had the image here of, of David as well. But uh, David um, humbled himself under God and loved his word, proclaiming it in word and song. Um, he trusted and had faith in God and his deliverance. God in turn accepted him and inspired him to write some of his word. Does anybody know what did David write? The Psalms? Yeah, yeah, the Psalms. Um, so through David, through King David, God further declares his plan. So close to the end of David's life, God makes an astounding, astounding promise to David and to us. So let's read it. We're going to go to the next book of Samuel. So 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And verses 12 and 16. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for me, and I will secure his throne forever. And 16. Mm -hmm. Then, oh. Then King David went in and, no, I don't have it. Uh, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. So, Apparently, I must have skimmed over it here. There's the image of uh, Samuel anointing David. So, God makes a promise to David here in chapter uh, 7, and, uh, 7, verse 12 and 16. Um, God promised David he would raise up David's son to rule in his place. And the second one, which is huge, David's kingdom would last forever. So in promising that David's house and kingdom would last forever, that his throne would be established forever, God was truly talking about the kingdom he himself was going to establish through his deliverer. You guys catch that? Um, 
this deliverer, this king, would be the eternal king, the, the, the real capital, bold K, king. Um, so if we go back to God's promise to Abraham, the deliverer would be a blessing for all people. Um, we have it here. You guys see there the bottom line. Will mm -hmm. descend from David and be a king forever. So we're adding to the promises of the deliverer. This is, a, this is a chart that we don't keep held up in our when we're in the basement of the church, but we, we keep popping it up as we have new promises. So born of a woman, we had that in Genesis 3.15. Satan will bruise his heel. Uh, we'll destroy the power of Satan's sin in the lake of fire. We'll descend from Abram and we'll descend from King David and be king forever. Um, if God's deliverer will be king forever, then what can we expect him to do to Satan's reign as God of this world? Will he be the one that's up here on the uh, third line? The deliverer. Destroy. Yeah. Destroying the power of Satan by crushing its head and reign, truly reign. How amazing. Can you imagine that, you guys? Will it be to be finished with our bondage to King Satan and absolutely free? I mean, there's kind of, I asked that question, I realized there's sort of, there's multiple tiers there. Um, so our true, our true purpose is found in relationship with God. As God pursued Israel, he was making possible a relationship with us too. Um, he was determined to bless all nations uh, through Abraham's line by giving them his word, his deliverer, and Israel was his chosen people, his chosen nation to accomplish it. And as a result, God continued to work through Israel's cycle of sin and rescue for the greater good for you guys and, and for me today. Um, a contrast question we can take, and, and if you guys have a better one or something you want else you want to ask, feel free to, to put it out there. But what is, what is within our culture today that fights with God ruling in our lives or ruling in lives? What is, in our, what is within our culture that fights with God ruling in lives? We think we have the ability to determine our own uh, destiny, sort of, or we want to be our own boss. Yeah, that independence, yeah. What else? Another word along with independence is individualization or individualism. Yeah. We're our own individual. Yeah. In the scriptures it talked about they did what was what they thought was right in their own eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's culture. Culture will tell you to do what's right in your own eyes. Uh euthanize people, um abortions. All that kind of stuff. We, we, we rearrange good for bad and bad for good in our own sinful thinking. Um, I mean, in our culture, sometimes it's, it's, it's embraced that God is distant and uncaring if he is there at all. Or he's, um, his rule is harsh and abusive and we're the oppressed ones under his rule. It, it, you know, if you would actually take the Old Testament seriously, like that's a, that's a, a very vengeful God. 
you know a lot of culture would say that in Canada um, seems to clash with all the decisions I'm making how can how can one rule over me that I don't feel I don't sense I'm making all my choices every day on my own accord um, how can there be this this uh, supernatural power who's ruling I'm just kind of throwing some out there but um, some people are jaded. They think that anyone in power is corrupt, and that would be God included. Um, what is the only right way for us to embrace the truth of God's rule? That he is ruler. He's obedient. Yeah. Obedience to the word, the Bible, recognizing who he is, how he rules, that he uses his power to ultimately bless, sustain, and provide for his glory. Um, and we too need to recognize that all of humanity, and that's us, we're in humanity, exists for him, for his purposes. So, what are our contrast points there? <laughs> it's a little harder when I don't have them like up on a paper. <laughs> Who brought the basketball hoop? <laughs> um, I've got a kind of a summary of the main contrast points here. Um, it's going to be hard for me to kind of take some of the answers you guys were given because I don't have them sort of live with me here. But some of the questions in review was how does it, we or our society act like the people of Israel? I mean, we're, we're much the same. There's a lot of complaining and grumbling, um, but we can learn from what they did and what they didn't do and walk in humility of God's word. Um, we may struggle. How do we struggle with God's balance of mercy and just uh, judgment? He is a God who will do right, and his ways are perfect. So can we not submit ourselves to the one who rules perfectly, as we are the created ones? We are infinite and so limited. Um, what else is there here that we had? And then just the, just the last one there, um, the way to embrace God's, God's truth of him being the ruler. Um, it, that's a hard one. I mean, we do, we do um, commend that independent lifestyle in Canada, don't we? Um, a lot of, you know, sort of self-made man kind of um, stuff is applauded. And, and it's, hard to, it's hard in our society to think that you're submitting to anybody you know, even your spouse, like goodness forbid that you submit to somebody you love um, and vice versa. And so how much more so um, an unseen uh, God. But the truth as we continue to unfold here. We see his active rule. We see his active reign. He, he accomplishes his will. He is faithful to his promises. And, um, and he wants for us too to be in, in a good relationship with him. And so we can trust him. So how does that leave you guys? Are you guys heads spinning? I mean, I know we're kind of in a different dimension here tonight with uh, <laughs> this uh, platform. Uh, I mean, we covered a huge portion of the Old Testament. Um, you got to remember that, uh, where do I have it here? That 101, you remember that mountaintop picture if I can't find it in a timely fashion here? Um, remember 101? has this uh, this mountain range kind of a th picture here that uh, in 101 we're just kind of covering the snow peaks here so I know we just covered a ton of ground 
And some of you are probably cringing like, how did he not talk about this story and how did he just jump over that part? But, but again, there is a system in place that uh, we're not trying to run down every, every valley to every river, you know what I mean? We're, we're establishing the foundations here, uh, getting a good a grasp of God's attributes and where we are in our sinfulness as we look back in history. Um, so I don't know if that was uncomfortable for some of you guys, just thinking how quickly we just traveled through those verses or those uh, books. Um, but as we look back on what we just did tonight, we have seen those who trusted God, uh, who came to God his way in active repentance. There was a looking to the bronze snake. Um, and even like Caleb and Joshua, they were humbly, confidently standing on the promises of God, um, placing their faith in what God had declared. Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, um, we saw God being faithful to his promises. We also read of those who chose to go their own way and God judged them. And there were serious consequences. It says that, the, you know, the, there was ones that the fiery snakes bit and, and they died. There was many who didn't enter the promised land. Um, the, ted, the ten spies who led the Israelites to doubt their inheritance into the promised land, the original nations in Canaan, Saul. Um, Israel was God's chosen people to witness to the world of God's goodness, Almighty God. So that means for us too, through these historical accounts, we've seen God's attributes. We've seen His mercy, His grace, His goodness, His faithfulness, His trustworthiness, um, His love. His just judgment, His holy wrath, and His anger. Um, his high above supreme nature and His personal sovereign involvement. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, let's not walk this life, you guys. I mean, I know a lot of us are walking with the Lord. Um, but even still, let's, let's not walk ignorantly and blind. We, we have it all here in our hands. Uh, this, this Bible... Um, God has clearly revealed himself to us so that we too are without excuse. I remember one of the First Nations believers in Pinehouse told me, she's like, this is the mouth of God, so let's not, let's not shut it. Let's be in it. Let's open the mouth of God and, and learn. Um, we don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve his grace. But thankfully, God is rich in his mercy, not willing that any should perish, it says. <clears throat> and so... Um, Let's not, let's not us be deceived by the lie that we're to pursue our own, our own way of living, our own independence, even in Christendom. Um, let's humble ourselves today and, and just come before God as, as our ultimate ruler, knowing that he is faithful to his promises in our lives too, um, as we come into his, his family. Um, There's a one little, three little bullets here about sin. I don't know if you guys have heard this before. Um, if we submit to sin, if we submit to Satan, sin will always take you farther than you ever intended to stray. Sin will keep you longer than you ever intended to stay. Sin will cost you more than you ever intended to pay. So we choose eternal life with God through repentance and faith. If we li live in any unbelief in God, slight disobedience, God takes it as rebellion against him. We're born in rebellion, of course, in Adam and Eve. Um, and as sinners, unrepentant, we continue in rebellion. Eternal life or eternal death is a choice that's before each of us. Um, so I thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, 
I thank you guys that uh, we, we used this platform tonight. I know it was a little awkward. Um, do you guys have any questions on, on the lesson or, or questions about how this worked or comments you guys want to talk about? <clears throat> No? See a lot of red muted microphones out there. <laughs> well, Brent, just appreciate your willingness to give this a try, to try to have some semblance of us uh, meeting together. Uh, you know, it uh, did a very good job. Uh, uh, you know, it's a bit of a learning curve, but, uh, curve, but uh, uh, yeah, appreciate all your work in getting this together this week. Hmm. Thanks, Tony. Yeah. Does this, uh, does this work for you guys? Are you guys happy with this to, to continue? I mean, I don't want to uh, push something that feels so unnatural to you guys that you're not getting anything out of it. How does it, can you guys cope with this, uh, this compromise? I actually thought it worked quite well. Yeah? Yeah, it's pretty easy. We did have a video off most times because of children and breastfeeding and but um, no, it it is quite a nice platform. I thought. Cool. I mean, I do. I mean, yeah. Aside from breastfeeding or whatever you're not comfortable with, um, I do appreciate being able to see people. Like, I mean, we already kind of all have budding friendships, relationships now uh, for the last several months, and some of you more. So it's nice to kind of continue, you know, riding on that. I can see your expressions. I can kind of see your nods or your head shakes or. A little hard to make out the eye rolls. Those were a little easier in, in real life. But uh, <laughs> maybe there's an annotation for that somewhere. <laughs> but uh, Well, I was very thankful for the fact that we could be together even if we can't personally be in the same space.